We're in Romans 4, as Megan read. I think she broke the world's record of reading circumcision the most in one service. She broke that record. Uh, and as we begin this morning, I have a question. Have you ever dissected something before? Anybody? I know some people have, even this week. In public school, uh, we dissected things. I remember people telling me they dissected a cat before. Um, I, get, I get that one, but no, no. Um, dissected frogs. Um, at my school, we dissected fetal pigs. I mean, you can never unsee that, you know what I'm saying? And I can still remember how that smells. And even this past week, my daughter in her co-op dissected a sheep's heart. That's right, right? Yeah. Uh, here's the question. Why do we dissect things? You tell me Why? to learn. It's interesting. We want to see what's inside. We want to see what things are made up of. We want to see what are, what's at the core of things. That's many of the reasons why we dissect things. And that's exactly what Paul wants to do today. Last week, we looked at Romans 3, 21 through 31, and we were reminded of this main fact. Justification, that is being declared right before a holy, almighty God, is by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. That's the good news and the heart of the gospel. And what Paul is doing for us in Romans chapter four, which is a huge text, is he wants to dissect faith so he can define it and show us what it is and what it isn't. And he wants to show us what it looks like in a life, like as the rubber meets the road, very practically, specifically in Abraham's life. Why? Why does he wanna do that? Well, if you look at the very end, verse 24 and 25, I think you'll see what he's getting at. Ultimately, he wants us, that is everyone in the room, everyone hearing Romans 4, he wants us to emulate that same faith. He wants us to trust the way it trusts. He wants us to walk the way it walks. He wants us to boast the way it boasts. And he wants us all to have that same faith. And again, I can't say it enough. That kind of faith is only a gift of Almighty God. The title of my sermon is Defining and Displaying Saving Faith. Defining and Displaying Saving Faith. So remember the church at Rome was made up of believing Gentiles, that's the nations, right? And also believing Jews. And what Paul wants to do, like big picture in this book, is bring clarity on what the gospel is and ultimately what is the saving nature or the nature of saving faith so the church at Rome, and I'll say the church here, can walk forward in unity of faith and forward in unity on mission together in the gospel. Does that make sense, big picture? All right, so Paul knows that there are Jews there at Rome that are trusting or tempted to trust other things to justify themselves before Almighty God, that is justify themselves for salvation. And what he wants to do is he wants to kick the crutches out from underneath their arms. I mean, like lovingly, if you can do that lovingly, that's what he wants us to do so that they will completely rest on Jesus and his finished work. And so what he's going to be doing is he's going to be kicking the crutches out the whole service. That's what he's going to be doing. And that's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, Paul, like a boss, is going to win them to his way of thinking by calling two Jewish superstars to the stand. Like he's going to make them give a witness, make them give a testimony, kind of the way David and Anna did this morning. Um, one of you guys can be, well, never mind, we'll do that. But 
Who are the two people that he's calling to, to the witness stand this morning? Jewish superstars. You tell me. Look at the text really quick. Two in there. You see them? Abraham and who else? Who's the other person? David. Great job. So first, he's going to call Father Abraham, the founder of Judaism, to, this, to the witness stand. And let's all sing it together. Father Abraham had many sons. Okay, that's enough, guys. All right. Second, he's going to call who? King David. That's Israel's most beloved and revered ruler. And see, Paul's overarching point is your Jewish Old Testament heroes, the ones that you love, the ones you can't stop talking about, they're on my side about justification before God being by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see is as we walk through the text together, again and again, like I said, Paul's going to kick out every other thing that we're leaning on besides Jesus for our justification. First point, faith in God's promise saves, or you could say justifies, not our family ties, okay? So look at verse one. Paul refers to Abraham as the Jews, what does it say in your, in your text? Forefather, according to the flesh. Y'all see that? All right, that is, Abraham is their great, 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 who? Grandfather, right, biologically, that reality makes them related to Abraham physically, but that doesn't equal right standing with God spiritually. Y'all, are y'all tracking, right? So Jesus highlights this point again and again in the gospels. For example, Matthew 3, 9, he says, don't say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. Jesus says, that means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones, we see this faith and family ties over faith in Christ alone in our Bible Belt context often. What do I mean about that? So talk about spiritual things with people. Uh, if you do, I hope you do in your, your spheres of influence. And often when I do, I hear this thing when I'm talking to people about spiritual things. They say something like, hey, I'm good with God. I mean, my grandma was really, really godly. Or my dad's a pastor. Or my uncle's a deacon. Or so-and-so in my family led... Sunday school forever, or my favorite, I'm related to Billy Graham. I mean, that's my, that's my favorite one. But here's the thing. We will not be justified before God on the coattails of someone else's faith. That's right, right? And that's part of the point here. Later in verse 16, Paul will say this idea. You can have Abraham's genes, that is like his genetics, without having Abraham's faith. And if you have his genetics, but you don't have Abraham's faith, this leaves you dangerously unjustified before God. By the ends of Romans 4, Paul will be calling us to rest our faith solely in Christ the Lord who died for our sins and raised for our justification. So bye-bye, family ties crutched. Kick, that's what Paul just did, right? Second point. Faith in God's promise saves, not our deeds. Look at verse two. Paul says, if Abraham was hypothetically justified by his works or good deeds, he would have something to brag about. He start bragging on himself in Genesis 15, the first time we see him, and he'd still be in heaven right now just bragging about how amazing he is, right? But is that how salvation works? Nope. Paul quickly inserts, that's not how it works. Remember, Abraham didn't work to be justified. He did what to be justified before God? What does it say in that verse? He believed. Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was, you tell me the word, counted or credited to him as righteousness. So this is interesting. 
Ten times in this short chapter, Paul uses that Greek word that we interpret in, in English as credited or counted. And that Greek word is logizdomai. So you guys say it with me. Let's learn Greek. Logizdomai, right? Well, what does that mean? It is an accounting term. And one pastor said this. I love this quote. It's a little lengthy, but hold on. It is gold, okay? When Paul says Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, it is not merely that faith results in righteousness, though that is true, that if we believe God exists and that he deserves our obedience and worship, then out of that faith will flow righteous living, Nor is it that Abraham's faith was in itself a form of righteousness, that is, meriting or deserving of God's favor and blessing. No, this phrase is something so much more. When Abraham says faith counted as righteousness, it means that God treated Abraham as though he was living a righteous life. His faith was not righteousness, but God counted it as if it were. This is big time right here, right? Paul wants us to know that saving faith has an anti-earning logic, which keeps us from boasting in self. What do I mean? Look at verse four of chapter four. It says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, that is, he is owed, or what he's owed, and to, to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, this faith is counted as, what, you tell me, righteousness. So imagine you work at Mickey D's, okay? And I, I was one of my first jobs in high school, 15, just imagine, okay? Imagine me with the golden arches on a hat, zits all over my face, I was there, right? And imagine You worked at Mickey D's, and for two works, you were working like crazy, slinging fries, boxing up the chicken nuggies, and handing them out. And then your boss said, uh, at the end of two weeks, hey, I was just feeling really, 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 really generous, so here's the paycheck. You'd be like, generous? What? I earned that paycheck. And Paul is saying, that's not what we have in salvation. If God actually gave you or I, what we earned at the end of our lifetime, and he gave us a check, we'd pick that check up, and we'd read the amount on it, and it would say, hell forever. Does that make sense? That's what that check would say. It would say, forever not right or justified before Almighty God. But this is what Paul's arguing for. He says, if a person decides instead not to work, what does that mean? That is not to rely on their deeds as the means of earning salvation, but instead does this, relies on the fact that God will take the ungodly, that's us guys, the unjustified, and will justify them through faith alone in Christ, that person will be counted or credited as righteous before God Almighty. Not because of their own ability, not because of their own goodness, but because of the very righteousness of Christ. Wow, that's amazing, right? Sinners, we can believe on Christ and we can be justified before a holy God. And Paul says it was the same way with King David. It's not just a a little thing that happened with Abraham. This is consistent. God always justifies the undeserved by faith. Now, King David did a lot of good things in his lifetime, but he also did some awful things, right? Is that true? All right. For example, He committed adultery with who? You tell me. 
Bathsheba, also had her husband killed. What was his name? Uriah, right? And then what did he do? Did he quickly tell God about it? No, what did he do? He lied and covered it up for how long? About a year, right? Until God sent a prophet, who is he? Nathan, to call out his sin. But here's the amazing thing, the unexpected thing. In 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 14, David's sin should have separated him from God forever. He, could like, he should have never been able to be justified before God because of what he had done in his past. But when Nathan comes to him, he doesn't just call out his sin. He gives him this really comforting promise. You know what he says? He says, the Lord has put away your sin. Other translations, the Lord has forgiven you. I mean, just get in David's shoes for a minute. You've been lying for over a year. You've been planning to sin against Almighty God, and you don't care who you hurt in the process. And then God comes to you through a prophet and says, all of your bad is not bad enough to keep you separated from me. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That's what he says. He says, your sins are forgiven. I forgive you. And then Paul in this moment is saying, you can't even understand the joy of justifying faith. He quotes David in Psalm 31, one through two and says this, and listen to the repetition of blessed, 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 which, also, which actually means happy, right? <laughs> happy. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's the Hebrew version of la gizdomai, count his sin. So to put things in perspective on what we should be feeling and the joy we should be feeling when we understand that our justification before God is by faith alone, I want to give you this scenario that maybe you guys can relate to. Let's say you're coming home from your beach trip. You went early, okay, because it's not even spring yet, but you've been driving about four or five hours and you're getting ready to get off of Interstate 85 and head to the house. At that last moment, not saying this happened to me ever before, except for that one time, but in the last moment, you see blue lights in the rear view mirror. You hear that familiar uh, car pulling up behind you. And then a gentleman gets out and he says, license and registration, right? And then your stomach drops, right? The police officer looks at, your, looks at you and he goes back to his car to do some things. I don't know what they're doing back there. They're just making me nervous. That's what they're doing back there, right? And he comes back up to the window and he says, I'm letting you off with a warning. What happens right there? <sighs> what happened? You deserve judgment, a fine or something, right? But all of a sudden that failure, this legit, like you really sped, right? You really deserve that fine. All of a sudden in that moment, that failure will not be counted against your driving record. What do you feel? You feel relief. You feel joy. You feel excitement. And I think what Paul's saying is that's a fraction of the joy you should experience when you realize that you've been saved by faith alone in Christ. It's his righteousness. Like transfer all of that feeling that you had in that moment over to what you've experienced through Christ and the joy that's, that comes because he's paid for our sins and he's counted his righteousness towards you. My question is, part of my application is, are you living in the joy of forgiven sin? Are you living in that joy? Because you can, by the power of the Spirit, because of what God's done, you can live in that joy. 
And second, will you abandon your works as earning earning God's acceptance? And instead, will you pursue works in this life just as an overflow of worship and gratitude for all God's done to save you by his grace alone? Abandon it as works as earning. Third point, faith saves, not religious rites or signs. Faith saves, not religious rites or signs. Again, Paul's kicking away the crutches, those things that we're relying on for our justification before God. And this time he mentions circumcision, right? So for the Jews, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. It was a cultural symbol that you were members of God's people. It was your members only jacket. Hey guys, remember that reference, 1980s, right? Or in our day and age, it was like your Costco membership card. Okay, that's what circumcision was. Okay, try to forget that the next time you go to Costco. But, okay, so you know what I mean, though. When you go to Costco and you're about to go in and you're like, oh, no, we're, we're here. Like, oh, again, and you're like, where's my card? Where's my card? And then you go there and you're like, I got it. I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be here. I got this card. You know what I'm talking about. You kind of like put it up in their face like, no, hopefully you don't do that. Okay, but you know what I'm talking about. All right, but this is what is happening. We have our version of trusting in religious rites and signs in the Bible Belt, and we're arrogant about it. Like, we lean on it, and you can tell by the way we talk. We don't talk about Jesus and all that Jesus has done to save us, how mighty he is, how forgiving he is, how steadfast in his love for sinners. Like, we don't talk like that. We talk like, hey, I walked the aisle, you know, a lot of times, or I was confirmed or I prayed the prayer, or I got baptized, or I've done the Lord's Supper plenty of times. And it's so easy to lean on these signs, right, as our saving justification before God instead of Christ alone. But Paul corrects this false belief that signs save by asking an interesting question in verse 10. He wants his audience to tell him when Abraham was justified by God. Was it before or after his circumcision? Now, that's a weird question, guys. That's pretty weird, right? But it's got a theological point. It has theological weightiness for Paul, right? Why does it matter? Because if it was after his circumcision, some could reason that getting circumcised has something to do with God justifying him, right? Isn't that true? They could be like, yeah, he got circumcised, and that's why God has received him, right? But if it was after he had been circumcised, justification rests on God alone. It rests in faith alone. It rests in Christ alone, ultimately, right? So the question, when was Abraham declared righteous? What's the answer? Do you remember? We've been reading through Genesis, right? He was declared righteous when he believed in Genesis 15, 6, right? Next question, you ready for your test? You ready for your test? When was Abraham circumcised? 14 years later, Genesis 17. 14 years later, just so you wouldn't get confused, right? Just so you wouldn't be like it happened the day of, right? 14 years later, that's when he was circumcised. And Paul argues like this, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Why, is, why am I getting excited about that? Well, I think one of the reasons is Paul's point is twofold. First, Abraham would have still been justified by God even if he never had gotten circumcised. 
God actually orchestrated the events of Abraham's life so that later down the road, non-Jewish, uncircumcised Gentiles would know this fact. You can be saved or justified and belong to the family of God without Abraham's circumcision as long as you possess Abraham's faith. That's the point. Do you feel that? And he's telling everybody in Rome, Jew and Gentile, he say, look, it's about Jesus. It's about trusting him. He died for your sins. He raised again for your justifications. Don't hope in all those externals. Don't you understand that though? Like you're hoping in your good works. You're hoping in your family ties and lineage. You're hoping in these signs and these rituals. And he's saying, those, are, those don't help you. Those don't justify you before almighty God. Only Christ alone. And second, I think it's implied You can have the symbol or the sign of belonging to God's people without having the faith the sign is supposed to represent. So this morning, if you're in the room and you're like, I've done the church thing, right? I'm good. I actually got some good deeds in my life and I've been baptized, whatever. It could be possible here this morning, adults or kids, that you have the sign of belonging to the family of God, but you don't have the faith trusting in Christ alone. And I'm calling you right now to put your faith in Christ. Throw all those crutches down, right? And lean wholly in to Jesus. Fourth point, point, faith saves, not religious rules. Verse 13 through 16, Paul's last crutch he wants to kick out from underneath us so that we can fall completely on the mercy and the grace of Jesus, okay? Verse 13, Paul finally tells us the content of the promise God gave Abraham back in Genesis. Abraham would have offspring and those offspring would have a place to live. And what Paul's doing is so cool and he'll do it more in Romans. He's expanding that promise from the Old Testament, from Genesis. He's expanding that promise to God's people that it doesn't just include one sliver of real estate in the Middle East, but that promise will include the whole world. What do I mean by that? Paul's point is that God's people are going to receive an eternal home and it's gonna include the entire universe, (laughs) the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't this crazy? And he says this inheritance is all of grace. It didn't come through the law, he says, that is by keeping or observing the law, but it comes through the righteousness of faith. Now you can think of the law as a religious checklist of do's and don'ts. We're pretty good about that in the South, right? You can start with like the Big Ten. Everybody know the Big Ten? Tell me one of the Big Ten. What? Adultery, right? Give me another Big Ten. What is it? No other gods before me, right? But outside of the Big Ten, there's 603 more laws. Did you guys know that? Right? You think you're keeping any of them? No, you broke one, you've broken them all, James says, right? But here again, this is the order, listen, of how Abraham was justified. He was justified not just without keeping the law, although that is true. Abraham was a broken man and an individual. You read the story, right? You've been reading with me? He's a sinner just like the rest of us, right? But here's the thing. It's not just that he was justified without keeping the law. He was justified before God even before the law even existed. The Mosaic law came into place and was written 500 years after, way after Abraham's death, right? 
There's no way his justification was on the basis of keeping scriptural-based list of rules and regulations. And we're so good about that, right? We'll use the, the, the word of God as our scriptural rules and regulations. We'll make up our own standards. But Paul is saying this, if you could keep the law, a person would not need God, a person would not need God's promise, and a person would not need faith. It would be void, right? It would be all be worthless. But because justification is not by doing and checking the religious checkbox, but it's only through faith in Jesus Christ, faith is required. It is needed. It's the only way to get right with God. Keeping the law can't justify, because you remember the law can only show us how we fall short. You remember last week I told you it was a smoke detector. Remember that? And Paul says in verse 15, it reminds us of the coming wrath of God. And he uses this very interesting word, transgression. You see that in verse 15, Romans chapter four? Now transgression is a particular word for sin that highlights the fact that you knew you sinned and you still sinned. It's like this. You ever been in a park and there's a sign on the grass and it says, do not walk on grass. You ever been there, right? Or something says, wet paint, do not touch. Or you think about the speed limit and it says 35 miles an hour and invisibly it says, do not break this law, right? <laughs> and then knowing all of that, you run across the grass, right? You touch all the paint and then touch everything else. And then you speed going 90 down the road instead of that 35. And Paul's saying, not only are you a sinner, but you knew the law and you still broke it, right? You did that before God. And this is what he says. He begins to turn the corner and he says, all these things that you're relying on, your family ties, your deeds, your religious signs, your religious rules, put a big zero over them, okay? Anything that you can think you can bring to the table, any of your efforts, put a big zero over them. And then what we need to do is we must rest our faith fully on the God who saves. That's what his point is. Faith rests on God. And he wants to show us what it looks like in a life whose God has redeemed. Final point, point five. This is a really long sentence, but it kind of summarizes this whole section. This is what the faith that saves looks like. It continues to rely on the promise of an all-powerful God in the face of personal challenges and limit limitations, okay? Soak that in, okay? I got it from this text. I'm not making it up. The faith that saves continues to rely on the promise of an all-powerful God in the face of personal challenges and limitations, verse 17 through 25. Let's break this down a little bit. There's really three main things Paul wants us to remember about saving faith. First, the faith that saves rests solely on God's promise. Verse 17 is a quote from Genesis 17:5, when God promises Abraham that he will become the father of many nations, right? Abraham's faith would rest in God's promise to give him future descendants or offspring. And he will have to be put in a situation where he's gonna either believe or disbelieve that fact. And as we see in Romans 4, 24 through 25, justifying faith under the new covenant is to be narrowly placed, not in future descendants, but the promised descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, right? The promise of God that Jesus Christ, our Lord, would die for our sins and he would raise for our justification. This will ultimately bring ultimate salvation and hope for the nations. And the question for us is, will we believe it? 
So you can think of it like this. Let's say you're a little kid and you can't swim. Okay, anybody in here can't swim yet? Can't think about it? All right. Can't swim. You're a little kid, you can't swim, and God is standing in the middle of the swimming pool. And he makes you this promise. He says, jump, and I'll catch you. Right? Just jump, and I'll catch you. I'll say it the other way. I will save you through Christ alone, his mercy, his grace. Just jump. And you're thinking, I can't swim. If I jump and he misses me, I might drown. And Paul's been telling me for these last several chapters that I should just trust in God and not what I can do. Here's the question. What's going to make you jump in that moment into God's arms? What do you think? What's going to make you jump in that moment? What? You really believe he's going to catch you, right? (laughs) To say it another way, you believe God is trustworthy enough to catch you. You believe he's strong enough to catch you. And what you want to do in that moment, if you truly believe that, is you'll, you'll throw off all your works as earning arm floaties, okay? Because they're busted anyhow. They can't, they can't carry that weight. You just take those floaties off and you'll throw them off and you'll jump wholeheartedly into the arms of your father. Second, the faith that's saved chooses to remember that the one who promised is able to keep his promises. The one calling you to jump in the pool, like, he is able to keep his promises. In Genesis 17, God personally reveals himself to Abraham as God Almighty or El Shaddai, the God who has all power to do what he promised. And Paul is saying with that statement, God's strong enough to catch you. He says, he's the God who gives life to the dead, verse 17, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This means God can give life to old men's bodies that are as good as dead and have no hope of being fertile, right? God can give life to dead wombs that can't successfully house and nourish a human fetus because they're well beyond childbearing years. And God can give life literally and to completely dead people like he did when he raised his son, Jesus Christ, out of the grave to live forevermore, right? And what he's saying is, feel like throwing off those busted arm floaties yet? Do you feel like doing that? Third, the faith that saves or justifies us chooses to focus on God's promise and his power to keep it instead of their personal challenges and limitations. Look at verse 18. It says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. And what I take that to mean is instead of hoping in man's limited ability when things got hard, instead he would choose to hope in God's unlimited power. Isn't that a good word, right? Paul says Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. Not only in your own limitations and inabilities, but the other people in your life's limitations and inabilities. And he said, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what, his, what he promised. And at this point, you guys might be like, wait a minute. <laughs> I've been reading Genesis, right? Is Abraham's life immaculate? No, it's not, right? 
I mean, twice he lied to protect his life from men who thought his wife was attractive. You guys remember that? We just read the second time this week. And don't forget about committing adultery in a culturally acceptable way when he slept with his wife's female servant, Hagar. You guys remember that, right? So where is the faith not weakening or no distrust or fully convinced God was able to do part? Like, I mean, how does that, how does that jive, right? I think the point is, it's not that Abraham's faith was perfect. And at that point, everybody goes, phew, right? But that his faith was never extinguished, right? His faith never stopped. He never stopped trusting, not in his imperfection or his ability to be perfect, but he never stopped trusting the God who was perfect and who would keep his promise to him. He never stopped believing God is gracious enough and a powerful enough to do what he says. He's the father in the swimming pool saying, jump, 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 jump. And he alone can catch me, regardless of my flaws, regardless of my failings. Abraham could have looked at all of his limitations, the limitations of self, and transferred them upon God. You guys know what I mean? Be like, I'm not strong enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not capable enough, and said, God must not be those things as well, right? I'm, I'm too old, my body's too old, the people I depend on are limited. These difficult limitations have been going on for so, so long, I should just, be, I should just give up. You can reason, God must be limited and not be able to pull me through in these specific ways in which he promised. And I'm just gonna let my challenges and limitations overshadow the greatness of God, his ability, his grace, and all that he promised. Is that what Abraham did? No. Instead, Abraham continued to choose to think on God's promises and God's power to accomplish them. And that's what we're doing, right? In the face of all the challenges, we're continuing to trust. And Abraham didn't just do that once. He did it for 25 years, right? From age 75 to 100 until Isaac came, right? And it probably seemed like a lifetime, but he didn't give up on God's promise, right? A couple of things as we conclude. The, the cool thing about saving faith, one of them is that it endures in difficulty, right? It doesn't give up. And some of us in here this morning, we're waiting, right? We're waiting on a particular promise of God to come to fruition, right? And Paul is saying, don't give up. Continue trusting God in the midst of the challenges. Continue to remind yourself what he said, right? And remember this fact. It's not that your faith is gonna be strong enough and get you through, the fact is that the one who says, I can bring life from the dead and things that don't exist into existence, he can give you the faith that you need to take that next step. Do you believe that? That's what he's saying. Another point really quickly, faith grows in difficulty. Isn't that cool? It's like when you go to lift weights, anybody a weightlifter, right? And you say, how am I gonna get any stronger? You know how? Throw more weight on the barbell, right? Because when you do, as you push and exert in that difficulty, what happens? Your muscles grow, right? And many times, talking to myself, I don't want to step out in faith in that obedience that God's calling to me to or to do something different or get out of my comfort zone because I'm like, what if I don't have the faith to do it? Well, guess what? Until you 
put that faith into practice in that difficult circumstances, you're not going to be able to grow, right? And trusting, and maybe that's what God's calling you today, saying, hey, I want you to grow. I want you to keep on trusting. And the only way you're going to do that is by stepping out in faith again. Another thing I want you to think about is faith also gives glory to God. Remember, remember the, the illustration of the, of the dad in the pool or God in the pool, right? Faith honors and magnifies the one it trusts in, right? The idea seems to be from Abraham that the more he jumped into God's arms and believed that God was going to catch him, so to speak, and keep his promises, the more Abraham believed and rested upon God in the midst of difficulties, what happened? The more, the more God was put on display as glorious, as worthy, as wise, as enough, as a promise keeper, as honest. Think about that in your situation right now, whatever you're dealing with. As you step out in faith with God's help and trust his promises, you're pointing to God in the pool and saying, he's going to catch you. Jesus, Jesus, how I've trusted him, how I've proved him or and or, right? I've jumped again and again and again in the midst of difficulty and God's caught me every time. One more thing. What do you need to grow in faith? You need difficulties and limitations. You got that? All right, check, right? What else do you need? You need to make a choice by the power of the Holy Spirit to not focus on those difficulties in the moment, but instead meditate on God's truth and his promises, right? But instead celebrate God's faithfulness and goodness. Instead to reorient your life around what God has promised you in Christ, right? That's what we need to do. And I needed it even last minute. I was having anxiety before I went to sleep and I hate to say it, but in that moment I was being fearful about a lot of different things. And I had to put this part of my sermon into practice immediately to say, I am not gonna fix my mind on my limitations and my weaknesses, but I'm gonna choose to believe in that moment that God is strong enough and that he'll keep every promise that he's made to me. The last thing I want you to see about saving faith is that it walks. What do I mean by that? It says in a couple of verses earlier, I think verse 12, it said that we follow in the footsteps of faith that Abraham made. Just think about Abraham for a second. He was called by God out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and what did he do? What did he leave? His family. He left all of securities, and he just trusted the promise and walked forward. Think about Genesis 13. We read it, right? Lot, his nephew and him were sitting there. They were talking about which way to go. You can have this way, all the lush garden of Sodom and Gomorrah in that area, or this way. And Abraham said, you pick. He just rested in God's sovereignty, rested in that moment in God's ability to protect him, rested in that moment in God's provision for him. And he says, I don't need to be in control. And he said, you pick. And he just trusted God in that moment. What faith does, it doesn't justify you. It doesn't save you before almighty God, but saving faith always walks, right? It doesn't, it doesn't uh, justify you, but it, it changes you, right? God's spirit comes to dwell in us and it allows us to walk forward in trust before God Almighty. I wanna read you this quote. I thought it was really good. One pastor said, when you trust God to fulfill his promises to you, to work everything together for your good, to be with you to the end of the age, to help you and strengthen you and uphold you, 
to meet all your needs, to bring you safely to heaven, when you really trust him for all this and more, it will profoundly affect the kinds of sacrifices you make for him and the gospel in this life. You won't be taken up with security and comfort and treasures. You will seek the kingdom and take risk in the cause of love. And that will make the glory of God shine all the more brightly. Isn't that beautiful? So if you're not a Christian this morning, realize repentance and faith are a gift. You need to repent of trusting your good works and earning God's justification. And you need to cry out to God for salvation. He can give you the faith that you need to be saved, right? Second, Christians, what are your personal challenges in the room right now? What are your limitations? What are you like, hey, this is too bad, I can't, I can't move forward? Maybe you're in between houses, or you're having issues with your extended family, or you feel physically weak, or you feel alone, or work life's difficult, parenting, school, marriage, church life's all tough. Your sin seems too overwhelming. Your circumstances seem too difficult. This is what I want you to do in this moment. I want you to redirect your focus on Almighty God and his promises. Let's just repent of putting our trust in ourselves and redirect our focus on God's promises. Next question, what is the promise that you need to trust this morning from God's word? In the midst of your weaknesses, in the midst of your limitations, what's that promise for you, right? Maybe it's just this justifying promise. Jesus died for your sins and he was raised for your justification, the end of Romans 4, 24 and 25. Maybe it's, there's no longer any condemnation for you. You're in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's the simplicity of John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, what? That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Maybe it's Titus 3, 5. You're not saved by your righteous deeds, but you're saved according to his mercy. What about when your life is screaming to you that your circumstances are too hard? Yeah, screaming just like that, right? (laughs) Maybe what God wants you to believe is you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ lives within you. And the life you now live by faith, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Or maybe it's this one out of Philippians. The work that he began, the good work he began, guess what he's going to do? He's going to perfect it. Who's that putting your faith on? It's putting your faith on him, the one who promised. He will do what he says he will do. He's going to perfect that work. Maybe your life is screaming, there's no way I'm going to make it to heaven. (laughs) Life's too hard. Life's too difficult. And what we need to believe is God said that he'll get us home to heaven, right? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, Jesus says. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen, listen to what he says. It's not that your works are gonna get you there. Listen to what Jesus says. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. What promises do you need to cling to this morning from God? And finally, what would it look like to reorient your life around those particular promises today? How would your life look differently if you really believed that God has forgiven all your sins, regardless of how bad they are? What would it look like in your life today if you really believe God loves you? If you really believe he loved you, 
and that you were his child? What would it look like if you really believed that he was working in you, regardless of your limitations or your weakness, and he was going to work through you by his power? What would it look like in your family life or in your church life or the decisions that you choose to make or how you choose to serve other people? What would it look like if you really believe that heaven's coming and there's not going to be any tears anymore, there's going to be no more suffering, no more pain, and this is the only life that you have? Would you live it for God? Would you serve differently? Would you proclaim the gospel to lost people differently? Would you love your family differently? Would you love and serve your enemies differently? Reorient your lives around the promises of God. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you that you're big enough. And that God, every promise that you've given us finds its yes and amen in Jesus in Christ. And we rejoice in that right now together. Lord, and we pray that you would give faith in this room today, right now, that you would give us faith that we don't have on our own, that we would trust that our justification only comes through Christ. That's the only way we're received both now and 20 years from now and 40 years from now. Lord, help us to believe every promise that you've given us. Let, Lord, help us to familiarize ourselves again and again with all that you've told us you would do for us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would reorient our lives. We would see our lives reorient around those promises and we'd walk forward not by sight, but by faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.